welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, it is good to be home. I will say that. There, there are far worse places to be stuck than the Dominican, but uh, I am very grateful to be home and very grateful uh, for all your guys' support and your prayers and looking after things back here while, while Joy and I were imprisoned. <laughs> really, I can understand Paul now. Um, Oh, that's too far. That's too far. Okay, all right. Well, I, I'll have a lot more to actually say about what happened because God was was at work and He was doing all kinds of really cool things. Uh, I just I need some time to process it. Um, although the the cold that I got right at the end was a nice little touch, so it's uh, I sound congested and I sound a lot worse than I I really am, which is normal, I think. So, but. Um, we're going to continue on our study in, in 2 Corinthians uh, this morning, but we're going to kind of put a pause on it, if that makes sense. So to understand this next section that we're about to, to get into, which is the last half of chapter 6, uh, we really have to understand about who we are in Jesus. And I, I often uh, try to close the message with that phrase, remember who you are in Jesus and who Jesus is in you. And so I kind of see this morning to be kind of half of that phrase and what that means. Who are we? What is this identity we have in Christ and why is that so important? And, and as I was thinking about that this week and even then just, just before, uh, during the announcements, Barry and Greg pulled me aside to, to pray for me and and, and as they were praying, I was just reminded again about how uh, Jesus, the, the greatest teacher to walk this earth, Jesus himself, in, uh, in John chapter 14, the, the night of his arrest, the last night he has with his disciples, he says to them that it's good that I go away because I'm going to send you another. And who's the other? The Holy Spirit. And he says, it's to your advantage that the Holy Spirit will come. And he says, because the things that I have spoken to you he will teach you. And I, I find great comfort in that passage because the reality is that, that the greatest teacher, Jesus Christ himself, all he could do was speak. That's it. The, the part of making that, that, those words, that truth real, that part making it impactful in your heart, that was the domain and the dominion of the Holy Spirit. And so I find great comfort in knowing that all I can do and all I need to do is get up here and speak. And then it's the Holy Spirit, it's his job to then take those words and somehow translate it and make sense. In fact, he, he says one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of three things. And this morning, what, one of those things that he lists is righteousness. It's our identity in Christ and who we are. And so that's my prayer this morning, is that the Holy Spirit would do that work of convincing, that work of... of uh, causing that light bulb to switch, maybe for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time. Maybe you've heard this over and over again, and I, I have no problem sharing it. As Peter says, I will tell you what you already know over and over and over again. And the reason we do that is because it's so important. And so that's my prayer, is the Holy Spirit will be the one that, that empowers us with the glory of this truth. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> 
We thank you that you are Lord of all and that you are that cornerstone. You are the, the God in the storm. You are the God at all times. And you have sent your Holy Spirit now to dwell inside of us, right here, right now. Incredible. In each and every one of us who has professed faith in you, your spirit is there. And we have the mind of Christ now. And so I pray this morning that we do not lean on our own understanding. We do not try to figure this out on our own, but that we open up our hearts to you and what you want to say to us. And for those who have not yet made that profession of faith, maybe, maybe Jesus, you'll speak to them too in a way that this will be the first time they do. But I'm excited to see what you're going to do because we're going to trust you as best we know how. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I, I remember the, the first time um, Hannah was, I held Hannah, she was born. And, and she, she was born and they, they put her in my arms and I'm, I'm holding this beautiful girl. And, and then the reality of it sinks in that you're going to be a parent and, and what that means and everything. And so we, you're, you're overwhelmed and terrified of all this, but now you have this glorious opportunity to see these children grow up. And this is Hannah and then Zoe and, and, and all the other kids as well. And, and as they've grown up and gotten older, it's been beautiful to see the uniqueness of each child. I remember when, when Hannah was very little, um, to get her to sleep, it was easy. You would put her in the car seat, and then we had this one CD of lullabies, and we'd put it in and, and play it, and she would just sit in the car seat, and she would fall asleep instantly. I, I got so comfortable with this, I remember just going, well, try and stay awake. Go ahead, try. And, and she couldn't do it. She'd fall asleep. So I felt, I felt pretty good as a parent. I could put my child to sleep at any point in time. So Zoe comes along and Zoe's struggling to fall asleep. And uh, so I'm like, I know what to do. Put in the car seat, put on the CD. But guess what? Zoe hates it. Zoe doesn't care. And so you have to learn a whole new technique. And so, so each child we began to see was different. But one of the things that we did discover, though, is that each child began to resemble Joy and I in some ways, right? I mean, what's the first question people often ask when a child is born? Knowing the name, knowing the gender, what do they say? Who do they look like, right? Do they have mom's eyes or dad's ears and, you know, grandma's nose and so forth? And I always thought I still needed those body parts, but, but they, do they resemble that? And I personally, I never had an eye for that. I could never, I could never look and see, oh yeah, that's, that's my eyes and so forth. That was never great for that. So I just trusted other people's opinions. But you began to see that they, they've inherited some physical traits. And I'm, I'm glad to see that most of my kids have inherited my, my wife's good looks, so there's hope for them. Uh, but if you're curious as to what I was like as a little child, Caleb is a great picture of that. Um, but, but then they get a bit older, and then now their personality starts to shine. Isn't that a cool moment when you start to see their personality? But then you start to see a little bit your own personality in them. Man, my prayer life went to a whole nother level at that point because you start to realize that they've inherited not just some physical traits, but they've inherited some solical traits in terms of how they, they maybe get angry or how they get upset or how they, they get anxious over certain things. And so they've inherited some solical traits. Well, the reality is we've also inherited some spiritual traits. And that's, that's what the scriptures speak about. 
So for example, in, in Genesis five, we don't have time to, to turn. We're going to look at a lot of verses this morning. So maybe just write these verses down, some of these references and the ones I really want you to look to, we can turn to. But Genesis five, verse one, it says that Adam was made in the image of God. Image of God, meaning that that is right, as is good, as is perfect as God was, so must have been Adam. And so there's nothing wrong with Adam when he was first made. But what's interesting is by the time we get to verse 3, when it talks about Seth, it says Seth was in the image of Adam. And between Adam being made and Seth being born was the fall, and everything changed. And so what happened now is because there is a spiritual defect, there was a spiritual transition that happened as a result of the fall within Adam, with all of humanity, when by the time Seth shows up, he's not in the image of God anymore. Not in the sense of being perfect, being righteous, and being holy. He's in the image of God in the sense that he has a spirit, but his spirit is now deeply flawed. In fact, that's what David's talking about in Psalm 51 and verse 5, where he talks about how he was conceived in sin. It doesn't mean that his mom was committing adultery or sleeping around. He clearly was Jesse's son. The problem was that, that Jesse was a sinner. And therefore, whatever was born of him was going to be born of sin that way as well. There was something wrong with David at conception. You see, that's what we need to understand is that we were born this way when we arrived here on planet Earth. We, we looked at it a, a number of weeks ago, but we're going to look at it again. But this is a passage I do want us to turn to. In Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> in the book of Romans is, is, you know, probably Paul's greatest letter on theology. And this, this chapter here, chapter 5, is an incredible chapter on, on the, really the, describing the problem and the solution of mankind. But in Romans 5, verse 19, Paul, talking about Adam and Adam's sin, he says, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The one man being Adam, the disobedience being the, the fall, the, the, the betrayal, the sin in the garden. Through that one action, the many, all of humanity, were made sinners. Now notice, how many sins did you have to commit to become a sinner? None. None. So it wasn't like when you, when you uh, tripped your sister and laughed at her. It's not when you lied. It's not when you cheated on the exam. It's not when you drove your Ford for the first time. That's not when you became a sinner, right? The, the, you, you did all those things because you were born that way. And we were born that way because of Adam. Remember that illustration we talked about in Adam? And because we were in Adam, what happened to Adam happened to us. And it says you were made sinners. That, that word made means to be constituted. Every fiber of your being, every part of you was and is a sinner. That's how you were when you arrived here on planet Earth. Does that make sense? And that's the problem we were in. That's why we needed to be saved. That's what we need to be rescued from. We needed a new identity. And the good news is God gave us one. You see, the rest of that verse, verse 19, Paul goes on to say, even so, through the obedience of the one, who's the one? Jesus and his work on the cross, the many will be made righteous. And that's our new identity. That our new identity is that we're righteous, that we are holy, that we're saints. And that's really what we're going to come after to this morning, is that we're saints. 
That's who we are. And we want to see it in scripture, why that's true. And we're going to try and back that up as best we can. But I want you to see is it says here that we're made saints. We are made righteous. It's the same word when it talked about made sinners. And I say that because too often what's happened is, is I've heard people say, well, that's a, it's a positional truth. Positional meaning it's, it's true in heaven. It's true in God's thinking. It's true in God's books. But here on earth, no, 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 we're, we're still sinners. That's not yet true of us. Where they try to hold it in some kind of a tension between the two. And yet the reality is, were you just positionally a sinner? Or were you actually a sinner when you arrived here on planet earth? You're actually a sinner. Well, now, same verse says you were made righteous. That we've been transformed. That we're someone new. We're someone different. Turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus, that's in the crispy part of your Bible. It's in the epistle, the letters, the pastoral epistles, pastoral letters. So if you hit Timothy, keep going to the right. But in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, let me read it to you. For we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Right? Again, that describes our position before Christ. That describes the world that's lost. That describes Montreal Canadiens fans. I see you. Warning shot. <laughs> you're loved, Isaac. You're loved. When you're teased like that, you know you're loved. So hopefully. All right. So it's, it's, it's the state of us before we knew Jesus. Verse four. But when the kindness of God, our Savior... And his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. He rescued us. He redeems us. Not on the basis of deeds. It's not based on what you've done or not done. Not based on the good works you've accomplished. Not based on the number of prayers you've prayed, the number of books you've read, the number of people you've witnessed to. Not on the basis of deeds on which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit when we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified, being made righteous by his grace, we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That word regeneration means to be born again. You know, I, growing up in the church, I heard born again over and over and over again. I just thought that was another term for believer, another term for Christian, another term for follower of Christ. But I didn't know what born again actually meant. And it blew my mind when I discovered it. You know what it means to be born again? It means to be born again. I know. It's shocking. It really is shocking. But that's the reality of it. You and I were born again. Now think about that. Because Nicodemus had the same problem. Remember when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again? What was Nicodemus' thought? Poor mom. <laughs> you should talk to her. I don't think she's going to go for it. Right? He's thinking physical birth. But what does Jesus say? Well, born of flesh is flesh. That's not what you need. You don't need a new physical body. That's not your problem. Your problem is your spirit, it's your heart. And you need a new spirit, which means you need a spiritual birth. But in order to receive a new spirit, you have to get rid of the old spirit. 
So what was God's way of getting rid of the old spirit? Shut it out. The cross, where we died. Where that old spirit was placed into Jesus Christ on that cross so that you and I were crucified with Christ. Romans 6, Galatians 2.20, 1 Peter, Colossians, over and over again, talks about how you and I were crucified with Christ. That spirit was crucified and buried and is gone. And you were born again with a new spirit. Now, I make that point because what's, what I've heard sometimes is they, they just see this righteousness is added to the sinner. That you have a sinful heart and then this righteous heart is kind of added in there and you're now a mixture of both. And it's a rejection of what Christ has done. He didn't just add to you righteousness. He removed the unrighteousness first. Amen. He removed the old spirit to give you a new spirit, that you were born again. 1 Peter 1.3 talks about that. Now he caused us to be born again. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17. We looked at this verse a little while ago. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you're placed in him. And what happens to him happened to us. The old has passed away. When Jesus died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. Behold, you already are a new creation. The new creation isn't coming. It's not one day down the road. It's not in progress Behold, you already are a new person, a new creation with a new heart. And so this identity we have, first is, it's by your birth. You were born a sinner, but the sinner died, and you were born again, but as a righteous saint, as a new creation in Christ. So that's the first means of our new identity. It's our birth. But the other thing is, it's a gift. Turn back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. And again, in this passage, particularly in chapter 5 in, in 17, 18, and 19, he's, he's contrasting in Adam and in Christ, and he's going back and forth in each verse. And So the first half of 17 is, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. The one being Adam again, and death reigned. Death has dominion over Adam and everyone in Adam. If you've ever wondered why this world is so broken, this verse explains it. Because death reigns. Death has dominion over this world and all of those who are still in Adam. And if Christ never came, we too would still be in Adam. But we're not anymore. We've been transferred out of Adam into Christ. So verse 17 goes on. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in Christ. Reign through the one, Jesus Christ. Notice that word, two words left of righteousness. Put your finger on it if you can. Gift. Can you earn a gift? A gift is a gift. It's something that is, you don't deserve, you don't earn, and that's what God's given to you and I. This gift of righteousness. This gift to be right, to be who I'm supposed to be. That's what he's given to you and I. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talks about how we've been saved by grace apart from your works. See, too often people say, you, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've, what I've said. You don't know the, the, the sins I've committed. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I knew a man who was a, a soldier, and he, he says, you don't understand. I've, I, you know, I'd, I'd drink too much, and I'd smoke too much sometimes, and I'd, I'd swear I've killed people. Doesn't matter. It's not, it's not about what you've done. 
It's about what Christ has done. And he's offered to you and I a gift. And what's the only thing you and I to do, need to do when it comes to getting a gift? Receive it. Own it. And if there's ever a gift to own, if there's ever a gift to own in your lifetime, let it be this one. This gift of new identity, this gift of righteousness. It's ours to possess, to enjoy. It's not about what you've done. In the same way, you didn't have to do anything to become a sinner. How many righteous acts do you have to do to become a saint? None. It's a gift that God's done for us. But the last means by which this is true is it's about obedience. People often say, I knew it. See, it's about obedience. Now, now that I'm saved, it's about my obedience. I, I got to keep my nose clean going forward. No, that's not the obedience I'm talking about. Again, back to verse 519 in Romans. Notice it says in that second half of the verse, even so through the obedience of Greg, Greg stays righteous. Is that what it says? No, good thing. It's the obedience of Jesus. Do you understand it isn't about you? I mean, it's about you in terms of your identity, but it's not about what you do to make it true of you. In the same way that my kids played no part in their birth, my kids played no part in their creation, but they are who they are. Who we are has nothing to do with what we've done, but based on what our father has done on our behalf. And so because it's about his obedience, you can't change it. Think about that, that verse 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we looked at recently, right? That, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfect, to be sin on our behalf. How did, how did he, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf? When you and I, who were sin, were placed into him. We made him sin. That's why the, the father had to forsake Jesus, because you and I were in Jesus. He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The very righteousness of God. I'm overwhelmed by that. Like, it's not, here's God, and, and here's me, Here's Robin. I mean, no, it's, it's God and me. Because it's his righteousness given to me. I don't deserve that. I make so many mistakes. I hurt my wife. I hurt my kids. I, I, I say careless things to friends. I, I just, I make so many mistakes. And what does God say? It's not about what you do, son. It's what I've done. And my obedience has made it possible. You cannot ruin it. Turn, turn in 1 Peter 1. This is, this is so powerful. This will, this will upset entire denominations, I understand. But this is, this is so powerful. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Peter writes this, Blessed be the God, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All glory goes to him. Amen. Who according to his great mercy. Whose mercy? 
his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That when Jesus was raised, we were raised with him. He did all this work. For what purpose? Verse four, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. What does imperishable mean? It will never disappear. It will never go bad. It is undefiled. and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Can you lose this righteousness? Can you lose your salvation? But what if you what if you get stuck in some kind of sin? What if you can't what if you can't overcome alcohol or pornography or or what if you've had a divorce? What if you've committed a crime? a serious crime of, of, that's left damage in, in, a, in a generation of people afterwards. Can you in any way diminish what Jesus has done? Because it cannot, be, cannot perish, it's imperishable, cannot be defiled. It's, it's an eternal, always there waiting for us. But here's the thing that's even more powerful. Verse five, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation to be revealed the last time. I hear Christians say, well, I know I can never, no one can snatch me from my father's hand. No one can snatch me from God's, but I can jump. And I want to, I want to think, oh, you arrogant, arrogant little person, you. <laughs> think about it. Because just understand, it says the span between the, the forefinger and the thumb, for God, that's the universe. Okay, so he's big. And you're going to jump out of his hand. Okay, well, maybe you're on the edge somehow. And you, you manage to jump. Guess what God does? Gotcha. <laughs> we can do this all day. I got time. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always. Please understand, when you sin, you do not break fellowship. You don't break relationship. Nothing changes between you and Jesus. David says, if I, if I go to hell, if I go to Sheol, you're right there. If I find the darkest places on the earth, you're right there. And he says, you're right there in such a way that we're face to face. Psalm 139, eyeball to eyeball, no matter where I go. You cannot break fellowship. Now, you may feel that. You may feel that shame. And you may want to avert your eyes, but he's got you. I've seen that in my kids, where they've done something or said something, and they just want to hide, but they're hiding in my lap. That's what it's like with you and your father even on your worst day in the midst of your worst sin. He says, I got you. Nothing's changed. You're still mine. You're still a saint. Well, let's talk about that word saint. The Greek word is, is hagios, and it's used 221 times in the New Testament. Now, some of those times it's used as holy. Uh, so talking about uh, maybe the temple being holy or talking about the Holy Spirit, for example. Uh, but 61 times, maybe 63, depending on your translation you use, that word hagias is translated saint. And it literally means to be set apart. 
That's what holy means, to be set apart, to be different from the world. And I think that's important to understand that, that it's, it's, there's a difference. There's a distinction. It's no longer part of the world. It's set apart. And that's what we are. We're, we're saints, not sinners. And I make that point because too much of our, our Christianity, too much of our, our teachings have, have blurred that point, that distinction. And I hear things, well, I'm, I'm just a forgiven sinner. Or I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Or maybe this one's the most damaging. My heart is still wicked and depraved. I just can't trust it. You know, none of them are rooted in scripture. I remember talking to a, to a theologian, a seminary professor, and, and I challenged him. I said, you know, the Bible never says we're sinners saved by grace. And I could see him pause and going through his mental concordance. So I let him go because he was going through it. And he was, he was going through all the books in his Bible in his mind. And he was speechless. Not once does the Bible say that we're sinners saved by grace. You know what it does say? Romans 5, 8, while you were yet sinners. What does that imply? Not anymore. I was and that was true of me at one point, but it's not true of me right now. And so, yeah, we were born sinners, but something changed. And you see, the cross wasn't just where you were forgiven. Because if it was just forgiveness, you'd still be a sinner. But because we were crucified and we were buried, it's why we hammer that point home over and over again here. Because that's what transformed our heart. That's what transformed our spirit. That you and I could be born again as something new. You were a sinner. Now you're a saint who sometimes sins, but you're a saint nonetheless. Saint doesn't mean that you live perfectly. Saint just describes the heart you've been given. But you may say, oh, but Jeremiah 17, 9 says my heart was wicked. True, when you arrived here on planet Earth. But Ezekiel 36 says that God gave you a new heart. And that's what he's given to us. A new heart that is so good, so qualified now that the Holy Spirit can take up residence inside of it. Please understand, when Jesus is talking to these disciples about the Holy Spirit, he says, right now the Holy Spirit is upon you. You see, in the Old Testament, and please understand, Jesus was in the Old Covenant all the way up to the cross. Right? So if you're in your Bible and you go to Matthew 1.1 and you turn back a page, it's you know, New Covenant, New Testament. That's not true. New Testament does not begin Matthew 1.1. It begins on the cross. That's when it begins. And so up in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could only come upon a believer or a person. And then it could leave. And that's why Samson, the Holy Spirit would come upon him, would leave. David would pray, God, do not take your spirit away from me. That's what happened to King Saul. And so these disciples, he says, right now the Holy Spirit is upon you, but he will be in you. It's a difference now. Holy Spirit's moved in, taking up residence. Well, why couldn't he live in an old covenant person? Because they still had a wicked heart. But post-cross, with a new heart, guess what? Holy Spirit doesn't need to come visit anymore. He takes up permanent residence. And what does that say about your heart? What does it say about who you are? You're a new person, a saint. Now, 
People say, well, there are some passages that would seem to imply that we're sinners. So we want to look at that. There's three passages in particular. So the first one we're going to look at is in Romans chapter 3. So turn there, Romans chapter 3. And I said earlier that this is Paul's, um, probably his, his biggest book on theology. In fact, the only other book I think in the, in the New Testament that could rival the book of Romans for theology is probably the book of Hebrews. Uh, but, but Paul has laid out in a very systematic way understanding the, the fall, God's redemption, and how we now live in light of it. It's an incredible book. And that those first three chapters, essentially, after Paul does a little introduction, the first half of chapter one, he begins to lay out the problem with mankind. And that's where we're at right now. He's talking about how, how wicked and evil man is apart from God. So Romans chapter three and verse seven it says, but if my, through my lie, the, uh, sorry, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? It would apply that Paul says, I'm still recognizing myself as a sinner, present tense. But I don't think that's what he's doing right now. What he's talking about is the state of mankind before the new God. I say that because he's going to go on to say in a couple of verses, there are none who are righteous. There are none who are good that we are all literally useless, rotten fruit. Now, if you read that and you think, well, no one's righteous, that, that would make the case. But he's going to go on and talk about in 5, 6, 7, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, about how we are now righteous. So chapter 3 is really trying to express the problem of mankind before they know Jesus. So that's that passage in Romans 3, 7. So it's not talking about who we are today. It's talking about the problem of mankind apart from God. So that one's an easy one. We're going to try to uh, attach these ones in increasing difficulty, right? So now you can turn to 1 Timothy, also in the crispy part of your Bible. So 1 Timothy chapter 1. You've, you've probably heard this verse or, or uh, are familiar with this passage. Verse 15, Paul writes, chapter 1, verse 15, he writes, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Or in the King James, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the number one sinner. If they were to make a list of the, the goat, you know what I mean by goat? The greatest of all time. You see this in all sports shows. Who's the greatest hockey player, greatest basketball player, football player, and so forth. They love to have these, these endless debates. Paul says, if you had a goat for sinners, I am the goat. I'm the greatest sinner of all time. Goes on to explain why. Because he goes, I persecuted the church. I arrested Christians and I, I ushered them to their death. And therefore, for that alone, I am the greatest sinner of all time. Present tense. So is Paul still identifying himself as a sinner? Well, let me ask you this question. Who is the greatest hockey player of all time? Wayne Gretzky, Bobby Orr. That's another acceptable answer. <laughs> yep. You could say Gordie Howe. I, don't, I, I think he's down the list now. It's who? Ovechkin. No, no, that one's not an acceptable answer. No. He is good, though. I got to give him that. Uh, it's Wayne Gretzky or Bobby Orr. I'll accept that one, right? Now, here's the thing. When was the last time Wayne Gretzky played a game of hockey? 
99. Now, I think you could say, well, he might have played a couple outdoor games in, the, you know, in one of those legend series and so forth, but he, he really doesn't lace up the stake, skates anymore. But what's interesting is we say, present tense, the greatest hockey player is the guy that hasn't actually played in the league for over two, over two decades. He's not a hockey player anymore. So the point here that I'm trying to make is that Paul can say he was, is the greatest sinner of all time, even though he's not a sinner anymore. He's not talking about his present condition. He's talking about his life as a whole before he knew Jesus. Does that make sense? Because again, he's called himself a saint. He's called himself an apostle over and over again. All right, one more. This was the most difficult one. And it's James chapter four. Most people get scared of the book of James. And it's because James got some hard, hard word, words at times. And so in James chapter four, verse eight, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does that mean? Because again, it's pretty clear he's not talking past tense, he's talking present tense. He's addressing them as sinners. Now, some have argued, well, you know, the book of James was, was written largely to a Jewish audience. And that's, that's, I think, on safe grounds, although it doesn't introduce itself at talking to, to Jews in general. Uh, we do read in other parts of Scripture where, where Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles and James and Peter were apostles to the Jews. So it would make sense that if James wrote a letter, it would be aimed predominantly at the Jewish population, the Jewish believers. And so some have argued, well, James really is not a book for Jewish believers, but Jews who are not yet believers. And that's why it's calling them sinners and it's an invitation to repentance. I don't buy that though. There's too much in the scriptures and passages that talk about not an invitation to faith, but to live out this faith. He's not addressing people who are not saved. He's, in my mind, very clearly addressing people who are saved. And when we try to dismiss it and just say, well, it's not really to believers, it's just simply of our way of trying to dismiss a scripture and not actually try to understand and wrestle through it. And that doesn't serve us any well, any value. Otherwise, we just throw out the whole book of James. And that's what Martin Luther wanted to do, by the way. He hated the book of James. But I don't think we need to. I think we can wrestle through it. So let's see if we can understand a little bit about it here. He, I do believe he is addressing a largely Jewish congregation, Jewish group. But he's also addressing a group of people that are struggling with a worldly mindset. If you read the context of the passage, or really the whole book, he's talking about how being friends with the world sets you up against God. It, it, you, can't, you can't live on the fence. You can't be back and forth. You got to pick a side, in essence, he's saying here. And so he's addressing these people, and he's using words like cleanse and purify because that's words that would have been familiar with Jewish tradition. Whenever they were going to approach God, they would have to cleanse themselves and purify themselves in order to approach God. But the idea here that you have to make this possible, that you have to purify your own heart, well, we know that's not what we do. That's God's work. That's what he's done on our part. And so it's, it's more than just this idea of, um, of, of now you have to come to Jesus for salvation. He's basically trying to say, listen, think about Israel. 
Think about how when they left Egypt, what were they always doing? Looking over their shoulder, looking over at Egypt, going, oh man, remember how great it was back there? Oh, the garlic and the leeks. Oh, I, I love some garlic and leeks right now. I mean, you guys, were in, you're in chains, you're slaves. And yet when they're in the wilderness, they wanted to go back. And that's what a lot of believers do. They come to faith in Christ and then they look longingly at the world. But you know what's miserable when you become a, Satan, become a believer? Sin isn't fun anymore. Think about it. Maybe there was a time in your life where, where you'd go out and you'd get, you'd get drunk with friends and you'd party and, and you'd live all kinds of crazy lifestyles and, and it was a lot of fun. And you didn't care about it the next day. And then you get saved. And then you do it. And then how do you feel afterwards? Not great. It's because God ruins sin. Thanks, Jesus. Because <laughs> it's not who you are. It, it doesn't fit anymore. And so these, these Israelites, they were looking longly back on Egypt, much like a lot of believers long look back on the world. And they want to fit into the world. And James is saying, listen, that's not going to work. Pull away from that. And so he's really just trying to, to get them to, be, to take their eyes off the world and put their eyes back on Jesus. That's really the invitation here that I think James is making. Now, maybe you don't accept that interpretation. Maybe you think that, um, that no, he is talking to, to sinners, and, he, and as a believer, we're still sinners, based on that one verse. Well, we got a problem then. Because all scripture has to agree with itself. You can't have one part of scripture say one thing and another part of scripture contradict that. And like I said, we have 61 times where scriptures calls you and I saints. In fact, that's what Paul begins all his letters to. The one letter he doesn't do is the church in Galatia. But every other letter, he says to the, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints of Colossae, even to this Corinthian church, and in the first letter to the Corinthians, he says, to the church in Corinth who are saints by calling. That was at the very beginning of the letter. And then he spends the next 16 chapters explaining why they're not living like saints, getting drunk, uh, abusing the Lord's table, uh, pride and arguing over who's got the better spiritual gifts and, and who's, who's the real apostle to follow and all kinds of church split, all kinds of problems within the church, taking each other to court arguing over spiritual gifts, a very immature church, but they're still saints. They're still holy ones. And then again, Romans 5, 8, while you were yet sinners, meaning you're not anymore. So all scripture has to agree with itself. So what we are now is we're saints, holy ones. Well, why does that matter then? Why is that really so critical? Well, I came across this quote, the me I see is the me I'll be. It was Pastor Adrian Rogers. I don't know if you know that name anymore. He's a, he's a few decades gone now. I, I remember listening to him about 20 years ago. But the me I see is the me I'll be. That's, that's Proverbs 23, 7, right? What I believe in my heart is how I'm going to live. What I, how I see myself is going to determine how I act. If I don't believe I can, then I'll give up on it. And if I believe I'm a sinner, I'll just go live like a sinner. 
Let me give you this illustration. Imagine, um, imagine you're walking in this hallway and you're eating a chocolate bar and you, you finish, finish the chocolate bar. And now you got the wrapper and you want to get rid of the wrapper and you come across in the hallway, two doors and they're open. And in, in one door, you look through and it is a mess. I mean, it is, you could tell a teenager lives here, right? There's just garbage spewing everywhere. Uh, you, you think there's something living under the bed, but you're not going in to find out. Uh, there's candy wrappers, there's plates, there's, there's, there's what used to be food on those plates. Um, it's now a science project. Like it is just a mess in this room on the left. On the right is an immaculate room. They clearly have made service. It is clean and spotless. And you're tempted now to throw the candy wrapper in one of the rooms. Which room do you throw it into? In the dirty one. Because who's going to know? Off it goes. But you wouldn't do the, dirt, the clean one because that would stand out. If I believe I'm a sinner, if I believe that I have a wicked heart, and now I'm faced with temptation. What will I do? I, f I belong in the dirty room. This is who I am. I might as well do it. What difference is it going to make? What's, what's one more candy wrapper going to make to the mess? What's one more sin going to make to the mess? And I'll just do it. But if I'm a saint, uh, that candy wrapper doesn't belong in the room. That mess doesn't fit. I don't, I don't want to make a mess of this room. And so I'm saying no because it's not who I am. It doesn't fit in me. It's more about I don't like the consequences. It's more that I just, I, I'm worried about getting caught. It's, I don't want to do it. Because it's not my nature. It's not my heart anymore. So we can say no to temptation. because can say no to sin because we're saints. We're holy ones. And holy people want to live holy. But here's the other thing I think is so powerful is when shame comes calling. When shame comes to, to knock you down and shame wants to tell you you're not good enough, that you're a failure and you're unwanted and you're, you're unlovable and no one could ever like you. And shame is just attacking you over and over again. You know what you can do in that moment? You can listen to the Holy Spirit convict you of your righteousness convict you of your sainthood, that you're a holy one, that you belong and you are loved. Okay, you don't do enough good things to be good, you just are. Because that's your identity in Christ. <laughs> Romans 9.33 righteous shall not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that righteous is never put to shame. That in you we are always good. We're always a saint. We're always holy, even if we don't always act it because it's by our birth in you, it's by a gift you've given to us, and it's about your obedience that we're saints, not sinners.
And I pray that your Holy Spirit now will convict us of this truth. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that message and it blessed you as we discover more about this great life we have in Jesus. I want to encourage you to, to like and subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. And also you can check out these videos here and watch more sermons and more messages. It really will encourage you in the, the joy and the power we have in Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.